You've survived another week. Thank you for listening, downloading, and supporting. Yeah, you. The Black Man with the Gun Show. This week on the Black Man with the Gun Show podcast, I share the history of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. Andrew Branca returns with his segment on the law of self-defense. My co-host, Monster, a.k.a. Michael Woodland, talks about why destroy your AR-15. We got a little news as there it was a shooting. And in case you didn't know it, the gun control people are on a roll. I want to share what went down in Orlando, Florida at the PodFest Multimedia Expo that I attended. That made me miss putting out last week's show for you. If that's all right, let's get this party started. Blackmanwithagun.com Ken Blanchard's Pro-Gun Podcast Hey brother, hey baby girl, thank you for joining me here. We are the pro-gun community of cool gun owners that have been fighting and surviving in the world of the right to keep and bear arms for decades. Believe it or not, this podcast has been around since 2007, and it shares American history with a truth you won't hear anywhere else. Plus, we got loads of fun, some training tips, gun reviews, and news for the leaders in the gun industry, the media, and the free. After John Wayne leads us in the Pledge of Allegiance, we're going to get on with episode number 557. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I want to brag on some friends here before we get started. Crossbreed holsters are some of the finest holsters in America. They are imitated for a reason. They sell holsters, belts, modular systems. The U.S. company that my friend Mark Craig had started in 2005 has been a supporter for you and I for almost a decade. Crossbreed Holsters has raised the standard for customer service in the holster industry through its two-week tried-free guarantee and a lifetime warranty. You tried the rest, now get the best. Go to CrossbreedHolsters.com and tell them Ken sent you. CrossbreedHolsters.com And I really want to let you know that I'm really thankful for all those who have supported this podcast over the years, especially those who are on Patreon.com. Thanks so much. Hey, and to folks like Buddy and Keela and Tim, thank you for being a part of the Patreon family. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Black Man with a Gun. This weekend is the premiere of the Disney movie, Black Panther, a radically different kind of comic book movie, one with a proud Afrocentric twist, featuring a nearly all-black cast that largely ignores the United States and focuses instead on the fictional nation of Wakanda. It's going to be one of Marvel's best adaptations. But in the real world, there was a Black Panther party. I first learned about them in 1981. I'd heard about them in school, but nobody really dug deep. This was like almost a taboo subject. I had actually seen the black beret and the black leather jacket worn by a few people in my neighborhood. But I wanted to know about it for myself. The time was February 1981. I was a young Marine and I was studying. You know, 1981, 52 Americans held hostage in Iran for 444 days were freed. 1981. 
Ronald Reagan was inaugurated as the 40th president of the United States of America. 1981, Chrysler Corps reports the largest corporate loss in U.S. history. 1981, aircraft hijacked by three Pakistani terrorists. And in 1981, Howard Stern began broadcasting in Washington, D.C. 1981. Well, it was around Black History Month, February of 1981, while stationed in Camp Pendleton, California, an engineer base in San Mateo. A young Marine corporal named Blanchard got into trouble for the first time. He was called a racist, a militant, a subversive for reading the history. Well, as a young man, I decided to go off base and go to the library and check out some books. You know, they were free in the public library. And being Black History Month in the state of California, they had a abundance of literature about the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. I had never heard of before. So I checked out 10 books and had them all in my barracks above my rack in a nice little room on the engineer base. And I read all 10 books. It was an amazing story. A lot of stuff that nobody had ever talked about before. Well, one day we had a inspection from the base commander. And if you had your room squared away, you could get a Liberty Pass for three days. Free vacation, just for keeping your stuff looking clean. Well, my three roommates and I waxed and cleaned and buffed and shined and pressed and ironed and cleaned our room like a hospital should be. Well, it was a big inspection. The battalion was outside. The general walked through the barracks walked through all the the rooms, and he came back out, and he called my name. And I thought, yeah, we're about to get uh, the accommodation, baby. So I came back into the room, stood by my rack, the bed in military terms, standing there at attention, and the general said, are you Blanchard? I said, yes, sir. Who else is in this room with you? And I named off the other three roommates. And he said, son, are you a militant? No, sir. Are you a radical? No, sir. Are you a subversive in my Marine Corps? And I said, no, sir. Then what's the meaning of this? And he pointed to the 10 books about the Black Panther Party that I had got from the library. I said, well, sir, it's Black History Month. And the library had a whole lot of books on the subject. And since nobody else was in the library, I thought I'd just make it easy and just check them all out. And I've been reading them all. He says, really? Yes, sir. And what's the meaning of that picture behind you? Now, this is 1981. I had a picture of a panther, a blacklight poster above my bed. I like all big cats. He says, really? I said, yes, sir. He said, get out of my sight. Aye, aye, sir. Saluted him and ran back outside. Got back in formation and my buddy said, so are we going to get the accommodation, the time off? I said, I don't think so. Well, after the inspection was over, we went back to work. All went back down to heavy equipment, to our gear, to our construction equipment. And at the end of the day, we were all called back together to be dismissed. 
and they called out my room. And it was not for the accommodation. It was not for the liberty. It was to separate the four people, the four men who shared my room. We got sent to four different areas of the base. I got new roommates. I've always hated racism. And I got called these names for reading the history of the Black Panther Party. Let me share with you what I learned. There was a place called London's County, Alabama. The London's County Freedom Organization, also known as the Black Panther Party, was started in 1965 under the direction of Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, activist by the name of Stokey Carmichael, who later changed his name. In 1965, London's County in Alabama was 80% black, but not a single black citizen was registered to vote. Carmichael arrived in the county to organize a voter registration project, and from this came the LCFO. Party members adopted the Black Panther as their symbol for their independent political organization. That's how it started. More than half of the African-American population of London's county lived below the poverty line. Moreover, white supremacists had a long history of extreme violence towards anyone who attempted to vote or otherwise challenge all-white rule. London's county freedom organization members didn't simply want to vote to place other white candidates in office. Instead, they wanted to be able to vote for their own candidates. Makes sense, right? Well, white voters in London's county reacted strongly to the LCFO. In many instances, whites evicted their sharecroppers, leaving many black homeless and unemployed. Whites also refused to serve known LCFO members in stores and restaurants. Small riots broke out, with the local police often firing only on blacks during these confrontations. However, the LCFO pushed forward and continued to organize and register voters. In 1966, several LFCO candidates ran for office in a general election but failed to win. And while their attempts was unsuccessful, the LCFO continued to fight, and their goal and motto of black power spread outside of Alabama. The movement spread all over the nation, actually. Two black Californians, Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale, asked for permission to use the Black Panther emblem that the London's County Freedom Organization had adopted for their newly formed Black Panther Party. The Oakland, California-based Black Panther Party became a more, much more prominent organization than the LCFO. Thus, few people remember the origins of this powerful symbol with impoverished African Americans in a central Alabama county. 1966. This Black Panther Party was founded by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale to challenge police brutality against the African-American community. Dressed in black beret and black leather jackets, the Black Panthers organized armed citizens' patrols in Oakland and other cities. And at its peak in 1968, the Black Panther Party had roughly 2,000 members. The organization later declined as a result of internal tensions, deadly shootouts, and FBI counterintelligence activities aimed at weakening the organization. The founders actually met in 1961, while students at Merritt College in Oakland, California. They both protested the college's Pioneer Day celebration, which honored the pioneers who came to California in the 1800s, but omitted the role of African Americans in settling 
the American West. Seal and Newton formed the Negro History Fact Group, which called on the school to offer classes in black history. They founded the Black Panthers in the wake of the assassination of black nationalist Malcolm X, and after police in San Francisco shot and killed an unarmed black teen named Matthew Johnson. Originally dubbed the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, the organization was founded again in October 1966. They instituted a number of social programs and engaged in political activities. And as they did that, their popularity grew. Remember, this was the 60s. And Newton and Seal drew upon a Marxist ideology for the party's platform. They outlined the organization's philosophical views and political objectives in a 10-point program. Number one, they said, we want freedom. We want power to determine the destiny of our black community. Number two, we want full employment for our people. Three, we want an end to the robbery by the capitalist of our black community. Four, we want decent housing fit for the shelter of human beings. Five, we want education for our people that exposes the true nature of this decadent American society. We want education that teaches us our true history and our role in the present day society. Number six, we want all black men to be exempt from military service. Remember, this was in the height of the Vietnam War. Seven, we want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. Eight, we want freedom for all black men held in federal, state, county, and city prisons and jails. Nine, we want all black people when brought to trial to be tried in court by a jury of their peer group or people from their black communities as defined by the Constitution of the United States. Number 10, we want land, bread, housing, and education, clothing, justice, and peace. And this is how they ended it. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect of the opinion of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute a new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form, as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will detect or dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object invents a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. And this was written October 15, 1966. Now I'm hoping you remember and know where that last part comes from. Yeah. The Black Panthers were part of the larger black power movement, which emphasized black pride, community control, and a unification for civil rights. While the Black Panthers were often portrayed as a gang, 
their leadership saw the organization as a political party whose goal was getting more African-Americans elected to political office, and they were unsuccessful on this front. By the early 1970s, FBI counterintelligence efforts, criminal activities, and an internal rift between group members weakened the party as a political force. The Black Panthers did, however, start a number of popular community social programs, including free breakfast programs for school children and free health clinics in 13 African-American communities across the U.S. Black Panthers were involved also in numerous violent encounters with police. In 1967, founder Huey Newton allegedly killed Oakland police officer John Frey. Newton was convicted of voluntary manslaughter in 1968 and was sentenced to 2 to 15 years in prison. An appellate court decision later reversed the conviction. Eldridge Cleaver, editor of the Black Panthers newspaper, and a 17-year-old Black Panther member and treasurer Bobby Hutton were involved in a shootout with police in 1968 that left Hutton dead and two police officers wounded. Conflicts within the party often turned violent, too. In 1969, Black Panther Party member Alex Rackley was tortured and murdered by other Black Panthers who thought him to be a police informant. Black Panther bookkeeper Betty Van Patter was found beaten and murdered in 1974. No one was charged with the death, though many believed that the party leadership was responsible. The Black Panther's socialist message and Black nationalist focus made them the target of a secret FBI counterintelligence program called COINTELPRO. In 1969, the FBI declared the Black Panthers a communist organization and an enemy of the United States government. The FBI's first director, J. Edgar Hoover, in 1968, called the Black Panthers one of the greatest threats to the nation's internal security. The FBI worked to weaken the Panthers by exploding existing rivalries between black nationalist groups. They also worked to undermine and dismantle the Free Breakfast for Children program and other community social programs instituted by the Panthers. In 1968, Chicago police gunned down and killed Black Panther Party members Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, who were asleep in their apartments. About 100 bullets were fired in what police described as a fierce gun battle with members of the Black Panther Party. However, ballistics experts later determined that only one of those bullets came from a Panther's side. Although the FBI was not responsible for leading the raid, a federal grand jury later indicated that the bureaus played a significant role in the events leading up to the raid. The Black Panther Party officially dissolved in 1982. James Baldwin said, American history is longer, larger, more various, more beautiful, and more terrible than anything anyone has ever said about it. And Marcus Garvey said, a people without the knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. To all my brothers and sisters, the reality is that black gun owners are gravitating to firearms for a lot of different reasons. We aren't monolithic in our motivations about purchasing a firearm. And you know what, folks? That's okay. We must do what is necessary to respect everyone's own reason or perspective on obtaining a gun, and to resist society, certain groups, or persons trying to alter your reasons. As I share history on this show, I realize that we must all be comfortable and embrace our unique perspective in this land. Be comfortable within your own skin, and don't let anyone define you with their, quote, moral compass on being a firearms owner. History 
in my short time on this on this planet has taught me that anybody who desires to give me a gun is a brother or a sister. And anybody trying to take one away from me is not family, not to be trusted. Don't get caught up on color. Freedom. Pass it on. I think it's time to bring on the law of self-defense. Welcome, Andrew. having me on to share this week's Law of Self-Defense Case of the Week. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for LawofSelfDefense.com. This content is provided for general educational purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice. If you are in need of legal advice, you must consult with competent legal counsel licensed to practice in the relevant jurisdiction. This week's Case of the Week, Jenkins v. State, comes out of the Mississippi Court of Appeals and a decision handed down February 13, 2018. The case involves the admissibility of evidence of specialized knowledge in self-defense cases. Jenkins, the appellant in this case, had shot and killed the adult son of his living girlfriend. He was charged with murder, which carries a sentence of life in prison in Mississippi. At trial, he was permitted to raise the legal defense of self-defense, and to buttress his claim of self-defense, he sought to introduce evidence tending to show the victim's violent nature, the victim of his use of purported deadly force, the adult son of his girlfriend. Specifically, the appellant wanted to introduce into evidence the victim's prior convictions for acts of violence. Four years prior to the shooting, the victim had been convicted of carrying a concealed weapon, and two years and one year prior to the shooting, the victim had been convicted of domestic violence. Now, this kind of evidence is generally referred to as character evidence, and in general, character evidence is inadmissible in court, the legal principle being that just because someone may have acted one way in the past doesn't mean that they acted in conformity with that pattern on the particular instance that's the subject of a particular trial. Now, one major exception to this rule prohibiting the admissibility of character evidence arises in the context of a case of self-defense. If you're claiming self-defense, you're claiming that you had to defend yourself against some other person's threat or act of violence, and thus evidence of that other person's violent character becomes directly relevant to your defense. Here, however, the trial court denied the admissibility of the victim's prior convictions for acts of violence, so the jury never heard that evidence. Ultimately, the jury would reject the claim of self-defense, convict the appellant of murder, and the court would sentence him to life in prison. Now, the appellant appealed his conviction to the Court of Appeals in part on the grounds that the denial by the trial court of the evidence of the victim's prior convictions for acts of violence was reversible error that undermined his claim of self-defense. The Court of Appeals essentially reviewed the legal principles I've just described around the admissibility of normally prohibited character evidence in a self-defense case, but agreed that the trial court had made the correct decision in rejecting the character evidence in this case. Why? Because the appellant was not able to demonstrate that he knew of the victim's convictions for violent acts at the time he shot the victim in purported self-defense. Indeed, the evidence tended to show that he did not learn of the victim's prior convictions until after the fact. To quote the Court of Appeals, quote, 
Because the appellant was unaware of the victim's prior convictions, he could not have considered the victim's violent past when he decided to shoot the victim. The convictions were irrelevant to the appellant's state of mind at the time he shot the victim and his subsequent self-defense theory. Therefore, the trial court did not err when it excluded evidence of the victim's prior convictions. Close quote. This kind of character evidence is also a form of specialized knowledge. Specialized knowledge meaning any kind of knowledge that you could not presume the jury to possess. The jury is presumed to possess common knowledge, things like fire is hot, but they're not presumed to possess specialized knowledge, which is either knowledge acquired in specialized education or training or knowledge of a personal nature you would not expect the jury to know. If that specialized knowledge is relevant to a case, then it can be admitted into court but only if the defendant can demonstrate that they possess that specialized knowledge at the time they acted in self-defense. If they only learned of the knowledge later, it could not have been relevant to their decision-making at the time of the events in question. This is important to us in the self-defense community because our community is chock-full of specialized knowledge. Things like the Tuller drill, things like the relative effectiveness or ineffectiveness of a handgun for self-defense, There's tons of stuff we learn in any kind of training, even just reading a gun magazine, that would qualify as specialized knowledge that might have informed our decision-making in self-defense and might be why what might appear as an unreasonable use of defensive force if you didn't have this specialized knowledge becomes a reasonable use of defensive force if you do have this specialized knowledge. And if that knowledge is required in order to conclude that the use of defensive force was reasonable, well, who's making that decision in court? It's the jury. So it's really important that they be provided with the specialized knowledge. Typically, you would do that by bringing in an expert witness to testify about that specialized knowledge. That expert witness can come in only if the specialized knowledge is admissible, and it's only admissible if you can show that you possess that specialized knowledge at the time you acted in self-defense. If you didn't know it at the time, it won't be admissible. The take-home lesson for us is be sure to document your training. Keep your certificates. Keep a syllabus of the course. Keep your notes. The good news is you don't need a lot of evidence that you possessed some particular specialized knowledge at the time you acted in self-defense. It's basically a more than zero evidence threshold. If you can show more than zero evidence that you had that knowledge at the time, That will be good enough to get that evidence admitted. But if you can't show more than zero evidence, the prosecution will almost certainly be successful in keeping that knowledge from the jury. And that knowledge might be exactly what you need to convince the jury that your use of defensive force was reasonable under the circumstance. Always, we do encourage you to read the whole case, which in this particular instance is pretty straightforward because the decision is relatively short and it's largely written in plain English, so it's easy to understand. You can find that full case at our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash law of self-defense. That's it for this week's law of self-defense case of the week. As a listener of Reverend Blanchard's Black Man with a Gun podcast, you can save 10% on just about everything at lawofselfdefense.com, including live classes, online classes, instructional DVDs and books, and more by pointing your browser to lawofselfdefense.com forward slash black and using the discount code black at checkout. Don't forget, you carry a gun so you're hard to kill. Know the law so you're hard to convict. I'm attorney Andrew Branca for lawofselfdefense.com. 
unless you've been under a rock for the last couple of days. On the afternoon of February 14th, 2018, a mass shooting occurred at Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. 17 people were killed and 15 more were hospitalized, making it one of the worst things that could happen. The perpetrator, Nicholas Cruz, was arrested shortly afterwards and charged with 17 counts of premeditated murder. He confessed. The shooting took place on the afternoon of February 14th. At 2.19 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Nicholas Cruz was dropped off at the school by an Uber driver. He was carrying a black backpack and a long black bag. At approximately 2.21, near dismissal time, staff and students heard gunfire and enacted a code red, a lockdown. Cruz activated a fire alarm while wearing a gas mask and carrying smoke grenades, police say. He was armed with the AR-15 and multiple magazines and began shooting indiscriminately at students and staff. The rifle had been purchased legally from a Coral Springs gun store in February of last year. Cruz then allegedly left the scene by blending in with fleeing students. He walked to a nearby Walmart where he purchased a soda at the subway. Then he walked to McDonald's and lingered a bit before leaving on foot. He was arrested without incident in a nearby Coral Springs about 3.40. He was identified as the perpetrator through security footage. As the bump stock was thrown under the bus the last time, this time it's the AR-15. But what do we do? What do we really do that hasn't been tried that can actually work? Most intelligent people say that we have to do more with mental illness. But survey data indicates that half of all Americans will qualify for a psychiatric diagnosis at some point in their lives, while a quarter of them do in any given year. Do you think the government should strip 160 million people, or how about just half, at 80 million, of their Second Amendment rights because their mental illnesses might predispose them to commit mass murder? Legally, federal law currently stops far short of disarming all individuals with mental illness, disqualifying from gun ownership only those who have undergone forcible psychiatric treatment, which is supposed to be based on a legal finding that they pose a danger to themselves or others. That rule is already unreasonably broad, since it means that someone who poses no threat to other people, someone who, say, is committed for treatment because his relatives think he might be suicidal, is not allowed to exercise his constitutional right to armed self-defense. Even decades later, yet the rule was not broad enough to stop Nicholas Cruz. Cruz was treated for depression, and he was, according to formal neighbors and formal students, weird, troubled, angry, and sometimes scary. But he did not have a record that would disqualify him from buying a gun. So the question for those who have given the matter a little more than thought is whether Cruz could have been thwarted by a policy that goes further than the current rule, but not as far as disarming one half or one quarter of the population. The real issue that nobody can really address, according to these laws, is dangerousness. Who can predict will use guns to commit crimes when the vast majority of people who have mental illness will not? Psychiatrists are terrible at this sort of prophecy, and judges aren't any better. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. 
who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. It is my belief that only God knows. You cannot legislate crazy. Can we agree that it's just plain evil? Speak Life Podcast. Have you heard my other podcast? Speak Life. Proverbs 18.21 says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. Join me in faith and be a part of my family on a podcast that gives you what you missed in church. SpeakLifePodcast.com. Serving Jesus without boundaries. SpeakLifePodcast.com. And we're on Facebook, too. SpeakLifePodcast.com. Hey, Monster, you're up next, brother. Thank you, Ken, and welcome to another Tips and Review segment. I am Michael Woodland, and today we're going to discuss why people are destroying the AR-15s. Since the tragedy that took place in Las Vegas this past October, there are a few people who are destroying the AR-15s. But why? One claims that he is not willing to have a tool and its surroundings that can harm people. Since then, this person, who I will not say his name, took a hammer and destroyed his AR-15. For starters, I do not bash anyone or any claim as to what they want to do, especially with their own property. If you made that switch to give up your right to own a tool for whatever reason, why destroy it? Are these guys looking for attention or are they looking to become a spokesman for some group? Then again, that 15 minutes of fame gets them what? This is my take on the situation for those who choose to do such an act in the future. Your views change on having an AR-15 and nobody will ever chastise you for that. Now, my concern comes in at when you made the conscious decision to destroy that firearm. This had to be a rushed thought process for this to take place while you wait for the media crew to show up and record your actions and the reasons why. Why not call the same media and donate? Yes, donate your firearms you do not want to various organizations that do things for injured veterans to be reintroduced to society after a major conflict defending the freedoms of the people for this nation. Those organizations give more than receive, and a contribution of an AR-15 will help out the organization, an injured vet making a connection with the purpose in life again, which makes it a win-win situation for everyone. If you do not want to donate to a nonprofit veteran organization, how about donating to a sheriff's department or police department who has a small budget and not enough firearms to effectively get the training they need to do their jobs? There are many solutions, but a selfish act of destroying a tool that you no longer want could help out so many more. Here's my challenge to you. Look for more ways to assist your community or help someone with things in your home you deem are not wanted anymore. Let's start making a change today. For those who are looking to contact me, visit blackmanwiththegun.com and under the leaders tab, click on my name, Michael Woodland, and shoot me an email. Until next week. 
keep shooting, keep practicing, and have fun. Back to you, Ken. Thanks, Big Mike. If you carry a gun for self-defense, be smarter and join the United States Concealed Carry Association so you can be covered in case you have to use the thing to protect your life from the judicial system. Upfront bail bond funding, attorney counseling, personal hardship coverage, membership deals and discounts, firearms theft, liability coverage, and more. Go to uscca.blackmanwithagun.com right now. uscca.blackmanwithagun.com All right, if you wonder where I was at last week when the podcast should have came out, I was in sunny Orlando, Florida. Yeah, I was chilling by the pool some of the time, smoking a cigar. I actually found my favorite brand now. It's an Arturo Fuente. There was a 2018 PodFest Multimedia Expo. Yeah, that's where I was. I was there learning from successful podcasters, successful bloggers, successful YouTubers on how to do this thing. And I got a chance to speak, actually, on Saturday morning on how to connect with your audience. It was an international conference attended by people from 11 different countries. You know, mobile mediums like podcasting and video content are changing things. And I want to be better at it. It was also a time for me to refresh and to kick back for a minute. So in between learning and schmoozing and picking up some tips, I was relaxing. It was hard, though, because I had been so wound up for so long, it took me a minute to decompress. But Florida is like my new favorite state. I'm trying to convince the missus to move there, and I think I'm winning right now. I met some superstars, some really nice people. And I was promoting my new podcast, Speak Life. Sunshine and good people and good food, these are a few of my favorite things. There's another conference happening in July, the big one, the mega conference. It's called uh, Podcast Movement, actually happening in Philadelphia. It's expensive, but if you're in this space to win, to, to actually do something, it's worth it. As a gun person, I was probably the only one there representing us, but there are plenty of concealed carry folks in the, in the house. So look forward to some more media from me, some more vibrant stuff. You'll see more YouTube videos. You'll see purposed content on our Facebook pages. You'll see, uh, yeah, you'll see some good reviews coming down the line. And I'm even creating a web page and a blog and a network that I can help promote other people. I got a new service, Blanchard.media. You know, after podcasting since 2007 and beginning in blogging in 2000, I have learned 999 things that don't work. You can start off right from the beginning. Be the best you you can be. If you need graphics for your blog, your podcast, album art, or a new logo, even a website redesign, I got a team and a resource for you. Blanchard.media. Yeah, it's my company. Discover what your brother from another mother can do for you. Blanchard.media. We also promote other podcasts and provide podcast editing services. Check it out at Blanchard.media. Graphic design and podcast services. Blanchard.media. Those who know the words of prayer, please pray for our country. Pray for our president. Pray for our neighbors. Pray for your families. 
Benjamin Franklin said, We must indeed all hang together, or most assuredly, we shall all hang separately. Well, that's it for this week. I want to thank you for joining me, and if you liked what you heard, please tell somebody. Dr. Martin Luther King said, We've learned to fly the air like birds. We've learned to swim the seas like fish. And yet we haven't learned to walk the earth as brothers and sisters. Until next week, just in case nobody has told you this today, I love you. And there's not a darn thing you can do about it. Shalom, baby. To keep in touch with Ken and his cause, head over to blackmanwithagun.com.